happy that we're going to do this episode today. Can you give a quick introduction of yourself so everyone knows what you're doing and who you are? All right, that's it. Hey, peeps. I'm Michael. I'm from Austria. I'm one of the co-founders of Stilana Automated Fashion Production. We're a deep tech startup in the robotic space, and we're currently in the process of revolutionizing how we think about fashion production. Ah, what a sweet pitch. Has a good ring to it. <laughs> uh, so now Silana has been in the making for one and a half years now. Something around that? Um, it's actually been around a bit longer. So we have yeah. started um, with our first proof of concept a bit more than two years ago, actually. Uh, mm. But we're really, we have really founded the company um, in May 2022. Okay, gotcha. Can you give a bit of, yeah, like a bit more detail of what exactly you're doing? Like maybe folks have already listened to the, I think it was episode number two or three with Anton. Uh, so some might already have a bit of a picture, but for those who never heard of Silana before, to get a, a better understanding of, well, how you're trying to revolutionize fashion industry. Yeah, for sure. Um, to be honest, folks, right now, 100% of all clothes, uh, clothes are fully produced manually. So everything is done by hand there. And this causes enormous problems for all the fashion producers, especially for the fashion retailers, but also for us as fashion consumers in the end. And we want to allow to fully automate the sewing process because this is the last step which is not done um, in a fully automated way. And if we can change that, it will actually be possible to have a regional production in place again, uh, which would mean that a T-shirt, which is, in our case, sold in Austria, can also be produced in Austria. And that's our big vision uh, from a technology perspective here. Nice. Yeah, I, I recently like read another one of the, the articles. Like you, you've been in the like the, the tech news all over, I feel like uh, month for month, it's you're getting more trendy. Uh, <laughs> yes. That, that's, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, like, okay, let's put it that way. So many startups just focus on software because software is comparatively easy to produce. It's not easy to be successful as a startup, um, regardless of what you do, but uh, deep tech startups are very rarely, or at least I get a lot less news about them. I would also make the assumption that there are just quantitatively a lot less yeah, out there. Sure. Uh, so it's really cool when uh, when it actually makes way, like when you make waves um, producing deep tech, producing actually like physical physical technology. So uh, I'm really happy. That's that's really cool. So I recently heard so like the the, the part of automating the production. So last time we talked Anton about it was um, at the at the level of producing a t-shirt. Like once you have the cuts of the materials, you're able to produce with your robot arms to produce a t-shirt. Now I read a lot about stopping counterfeit products with uh, with like big brands. So how does that work? Yeah. Uh, it's an additional technology we developed while we had to manipulate the 
sewing machines are in our production process. Okay. And we're now actually able to have each stitch in the seam placed precisely and composedly, and we can therefore integrate a unique serial number into any sewn product. And you can save information in there um, to put it in an easy way. And you can therefore have it available for, as you said, anti-counter um, feeding here, but also to have transparency in the supply chain. So there are actually many um, yeah, useful applications for that technology available. So you would sue a little number somewhere under a stitch between, like, I, I don't know exactly. I never really looked at the lining of my yeah. of my clothes, but you would place like some identification number somewhere. Yeah, in the end, it's uh, a functional seam. It's just um, something you have in your T-shirt, anyways. Yeah, and so it's not a problem for the end consumer, but you can actually read this via a smartphone camera, and uh. Uh, therefore have the information available for everyone for the B two C customers. Um, for B2B players, but also um, for like exporting and importing your goods. So this is like very useful for all sides of this market because anti-counterfeiting is actually like a huge problem, especially in the textile market, but in the end, um, in, in every industry so far. Nice. Like, so next time, or maybe not next time, but in a couple of years from now, when you go to Italy on vacation and you walk over some plaza with uh, with a lot of textile products, you can just like flip them over, scan them with like the right spot with your phone, and see if uh, they have the mark or not. Um, yeah, it's not the mark, but if we read them and they just say okay, you, you don't get. Um, on the specific website where we save the information, not the website, but our database. Um, yeah. you will, yeah, you will have a problem from, from that side. So you can be sure that your product is actually, um, yeah, legit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So the, I, I remember when you guys started out, uh, so you, um, Michimaya and Anton, and like they were, like you were, you were trying to go really hard just at um, making, like making it on as an entrepreneur. So uh, I remember the first time I talked to some of you when the when the idea of optimization um, in the fashion industry came up. But for how. It's a long process, right? Like you, we might have many ideas, but sure. it's really hard to then really um, zoom into one and uh, make the decision to actually stick with it and then go with it now for what did you say, two years? Can you like how how was it? Like how was the the whole process from from the start on, and what made you mm -hmm. actually so sure that you would go with the idea of Silana? To be honest, at the very beginning. We were focused on a different approach. It was called Merge Gecko back then. And it was more about democratizing the design process to really give the end consumer the opportunity um, to actually design their products to their needs uh, mm -hmm. with regard to the fit of your clothing, with regard to the design itself. And this was really um, the point when we were confronted with the very big problems of the textile industry. 
mainly being in the case of merge scapegoat the long lead times because we saw that the to, to have like competitive prices would have mm-hmm. to wait approximately six months uh, for t-shirts in that case from Southeast Asia and this was just not viable for our business idea and then we actually were then we were actually confronted with the big problems from the sustainability side from mm. the social sustainability side but also from um, the other the environmental side of this industry and this is really when we sat together and said okay there had to be a better way to produce fashion then we thought about it and said okay if we could enable a regionalized production approach this would really change the whole industry and we knew that men and labor is currently representing the whole sewing process mm-hmm. so for a simple t-shirt you need between 9 to 12 people to sew them together mm-hmm. and we're like stunned by that fact and this is really when we started to think about an automated production approach and mm-hmm. this is really the day when Silano was birthed basically <laughs> ah okay gotcha so it's still a little bit like entrepreneurship 101 here so once okay. you felt sure. connected to the idea of um, automating fashion industry, like also like yeah, making it more efficient and also less environmentally taxing, yeah. what were the steps that you that you took? Like, did you get you get in touch with people to talk about had like industry insights? Was it lots of um, quantitative market research? What was the thought process here? To be honest, it was in the very beginning, we really had to understand this market as a whole, the business we were about to pursue. So mm-hmm. we started with a lot of research and, and it was basically, I would say three to six months with regard to let's, let's call it business research or mm-hmm. market perspectives, talking to people from the industry, actually looking at the facilities, at the sewing facilities in European um sewing factories and stuff mm-hmm. like that and the other half was also from a technological perspective because anton who um you already hosted um here um is our cto and he started with a first proof of concept on how mm-hmm. we could actually handle textiles in an automated manner um so this was the the other half for those let's say called three to six months and mm-hmm. after that we were like in a position where I said, okay, now it's time to talk externally for the very first time. And then we joined the first programs in Austria, were supported from, from there on. And yeah, received the first attention, basically. And okay. this is like, but this is like the very first, be- uh, first beginning. Yeah. And from there on, what's basically happened is, that we we joined the first high-tech incubator. They gave us like the first stamp that we were actually smart and that this idea is really useful for the whole mm-hmm. industry. And then we pursued from there and um, we got the first money. We were able to mm-hmm. um, have the first development in place. And this is basically 12 months ago. And within those 12 months, we were able to raise like 700,000 euros from just grants. So we're by um, now fully bootstrapped. 
and yeah. we're in a very good position to start our first fundraising process. Nice. Okay, so all up to now was your own funds, governmental exactly. funding, like research grants, maybe even, okay. or like R&D yeah. grants. Ah, that's so cool. Like, yeah, I, honestly, that's, that's, that's the Austrian ecosystem, which is really supporting you here, because this is quite unusual for the uh, startup environment, as you know, obviously. Is it mainly in your industry or is it generally easier in Austria to get um, R&D grants or like more early support that is not bound to, to giving up equity? I would say it's in general easier in Austria to get that mm -hmm. kind of funding. Mm -hmm. um, but for hard tech startups, um, there are even more opportunities available for that. So nice. to, to be honest, when we first talked with um, certain VCs in Austria, mm -hmm. uh, there was like a quote when um, um, a woman in, in VC shared with us, like every startup in our space who doesn't get at least 1 million euros in public grants, mm -hmm. they're just lazy. And this is really <laughs> something uh, back then when we hadn't had had any public funding in place yeah. it was like what the hell do you mean but <laughs> like one year after that we actually know what she what she meant back then because as i said we received almost a million now and yeah. we're currently in the application process for another grant which just this one grant is worth 1.4 million euros so Whoa. this is actually like crazy numbers we were talking here about yeah also on in the austrian like Within Austria, or is it like a European grant? That's still an Austrian grant. Damn. And there are even more European grants available. And I would say these are like specifically rather for hardware startups than software startups. Yeah. Or at least there has to be a hardware part in it. Mm, sounds like a lot of paperwork. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Don't tell me about it. <laughs> uh, is it you who, who does the grant applications mainly or is it uh, Adam? It's it's a whole team effort because okay. obviously it's partly um, a technical process. So this is yeah. solely up to, to Anton here um, to like define the milestones, to define the development plan and stuff like that. And for the business part, Michael and myself are sharing the workload here. Gotcha. We're gonna take a quick technical break and I'll be right back. We're back. Uh, microphones. Like, th that's, that's the thing about tech, right? Like, that's, that's the thing about like hardware products. It's yeah, just exactly. so hard. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many problems you wouldn't expect happening. Um, and you're actually like, you have everything tested. And in the end, like when you tried with the customer or in that case with your podcasting partner, yeah, it's just not working out. <laughs> it's part of, <laughs> yeah. part of the game. Part of the game. Your design is, is really tough. I mean, like, uh, for people just listening, um, the Mike is using a, a blue Yeti. It's pretty common microphone. It has like two knobs on, um, like on the, the actual device that you can turn around and play with. But 
in the end, it always depends so much on the rest of your setup, on your environment, on, well, also your behavior and so many things. And if you are the person producing that product, like you can give recommendations, obviously, but there are just so many cases and so many other things that can go wrong. So with a, when you produce like a website or if you have like a web app or something, like you can A-B test like crazy, right? Like you can, with every user, you can do tests. You can do different segmentations. You can just change the colors. You can change the placement. You can change the design. You can change the fonts. You can do everything. But it just doesn't work like that with hardware. In a world where we are so focused on like optimizing everything so it's perfect and then maybe even create different versions for different consumers and they don't even know. Yeah. Like this just doesn't work if you actually have a production line you have to reduce something. No, there's like not like especially for us there is not like one solution available you can just plug in in and even though we are designing our production line in the plug and play process there are still so many factors you have to consider to really put this into um, facilities outside. So, yeah. yeah, you're fully right with what you say about uh, my Yeti right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, how I, I I would imagine it's like the talking to the the production plants that we might later buy your product uh like talking to exactly. them is has like since you were able to talk to them uh was probably a huge learning curve right for sure to be honest like also next week we're visiting one of the biggest producers for a german street fashion brand and mm -hmm. street fashion retailer and stuff like that is just really changing you because they have an enormous amount of experience for this conventional production process. And if you just go forward and talk to them and they explain um, everything they know, and then they say, okay, we're producing, let's put in numbers, 1 million t-shirts of one design and even in one size per year. You just think to yourself, holy damn, that's... Crazy what's <laughs> happening in the industry. Fashion is so goddamn big. It's crazy. It really is. And to really be able here to say, okay, how can we work together? How can we make this happen? And what goals do we have to reach to really be able to implement this? Maybe not only in Europe, but rather in China as well. Um, mm -hmm. This is really something different. And this is really where you see how your small idea has evolved towards like a really changing company. Mm -hmm. Talking about like different parts of the world, do you have some numbers on where, how much of the clothing that we wear is being produced? Yeah, sure. Um, I would have to, to look for the exact numbers, but mm -hmm. Um, just like rough estimates. Just for a rough estimate, it would be like a tenth in Europe, approximately, versus mm -hmm. uh, the worldwide market. And obviously, Asia is really dominant in that space. But mm -hmm. what's actually interesting to see, there is a huge regionalization pressure 
And you can see this on a macroeconomic perspective because the worldwide market for fashion production right now is growing with 3% per year. And in comparison, the European Whoa. production is growing with 6% per year. Whoa. And it's actually, there is actually way more demand than that, but with a lack of workforce for qualified sewers, um, this is really hindering their growth in Europe right now. The demand for local production of fashion? Yeah, it's actually growing tremendously because fast fashion is getting faster and faster and faster mm -hmm. and the lead times haven't changed. And what you have been able to see for the last 15 years, let's take Germany, for example, here, fashion retailers have more than half since then. They just got bankrupt because, because they cannot cope with the current conditions. And mm. this is really something which triggered this European production approach again. And even though they have to pay way more than for a shirt produced in Bangladesh, um, it's something which they really consider to do to really hit the trend and therefore hit the quantities and therefore have the profits they need to survive. I remember reading somewhere that the lead times of like basically once you have things or like, how, wait, how does it go? Like there was around like 12 months of lead time, right? Like from, I think it was the actual concept for the clothing until it arrives in the store. Yeah, exactly. Or? Exactly. Okay. From the concept towards the selling point, it's can be up to 12 months. I would say just solely for the production process where the designers already give like their designs towards the producers. It's between six to nine months if you produce in Southeast Asia. Mm. Okay, and in Southeast Asia, the biggest hubs would be like still within China and Vietnam and maybe India or other, other big countries? Um, yeah, China's obviously big. Like, to be honest, right now, Bangladesh is the biggest producing China. country. Okay. Um, in that space, yeah. Okay. So basically when there's a, a German company, they might make the, the designs and everything in their offices in Germany and then have like the communication with their partner in Bangladesh where they have like the manufacturing processes. And then how does it work? Like in terms of are they probably creating like some samples first and then afterwards kind of like back and forth, maybe making some changes? Like what's the, what's the step by step? process here um sure so what they do is like they discuss the design they discuss the fit they discuss the trend they discuss especially the quantities and the prices mm -hmm. and from there on you have often like patterns in place that you can have a look at but this can also be done manually right now so this is not the big problem um but why it takes so long is really because they have to buy the fabrics, they have to dye it, they have varying processes which often do not even happen in the same countries. And then they have like the cutting process in place, then they have to sew it together and this takes days for days for days for days for weeks. And in the end, there is a huge amount of time um, for logistics in place because you have to wait three weeks for the containers to be actually loaded. Then you have like 
really more more than a month just for shipping times on sea so the numbers are huge here and this causes like tremendous problems and if you add like supply chain complexity and this has really happened um quite often let's talk about the problem at the suez uh, um mm -hmm. channel there um you probably in that case you received your winter jacket in early march and then your clothing <laughs> were just worthless so yeah oh, this is uh, really problematic what's happening there ah <laughs> uh, tough okay like the for us having been born i guess like after the after the 70s uh like the all our fashion all our clothing has always been a product of globalization like of a globalized supply chains like does it still like i mean like the the way i think of it it's like super complex right like the the it takes so much energy to create such a complex chain. And I guess it made sense that it developed that way in terms of, okay, labor was just so much cheaper. But the more and more um, we come towards the technological advancement of automation, I'm just still surprised that the, the labor costs have such a big argument in to keep the globalization or like the the supply chain so long and so complex that mm -hmm. uh, there isn't much more local production yet and that there hasn't been much bigger effort of shortening um, or making it less complex putting it closer to let's for example in europe uh, or at least have it like in in eastern european countries when you still want to keep the labor costs shorter but at so far, everything still being done by hand still strikes me as so, so surprising and almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. To be honest, you also have to take regard to like the technology perspective here. Um, handling textiles in an automated manner is regarded as the holy grail of automation because there mm. are so many factors which you have to consider because each and every fabric is different each and every batch of the same fabric can be different and also like if you compare just put it in numbers here right now for a simple t-shirt you have like eight minutes of production time mm -hmm. sometimes it's nine sometimes it's seven if it's more complex it can be in 10 minutes we will be able to do it in two minutes with a fully automated production approach crazy so this is helping a lot but still, if we compare it with a two minutes production approach with costs in Bangladesh, we, for the closer future, will not be able to actually offset the cost advantages from producing there, mm -hmm. even though we are way faster. And this is because they have slave-like working conditions there, where they pay their workers 50 euros uh, per month maybe even less where we have child labor in place 
and mm -hmm. nobody really cared about this. So if they don't have consequences to be companies, they won't change their manners because this was good for business so far because they were gaining market shares like crazy. Mm -hmm. And all of this is right now changing. The costs for robotics is getting less and less, which enables new use cases. Mm -hmm. um, so we can actually apply our robotics in, say, at least Europe, in the US, even in China now, and it's like, comparatively cheaper than the current production. Um, so this is changing from an economic perspective. Then you have regulatory pressure. See, let's look at like the EU Supply Chain Act. This is really going to change um, the industry tremendously. And Can you give a big bit problem. of an insight into what exactly the yeah. EU Supply Chain Act is? Um, let, let's put it like that. Ten years ago uh, in Bangladesh, like. Um, there was a huge um, problem, like an explosion in a facility, in a sewing facility. Many people died, children died, and the companies producing at those facilities, the brands, they were not held responsible for that. And it's honestly crazy if you think about it. And the EU Supply Chain Act is right now changing that because now the big brands like H&M, Zara, um, also from a luxury perspective, Gucci, LVMH, and, and stuff like that, they will be held responsible for every product they sell. And they are not only responsible for their direct sourcing companies, but also for those subsidiaries and on and on and on. So this will change how they will think about their supply chains. And... Mm companies like Shein, which is like the hyper-fast fashion company of the 21st um, century here, they will maybe even be banned from exporting their stuff to Europe. And this will also help a lot to make this industry more sustainable here, at least from a social perspective. Okay, so the EU really picked up that responsibility uh, to regulate it, to make the well market safer, like to make the conditions better for the the Especially, workers yeah, and to yeah, just for sure, yeah. Okay, start start starting from the fiber towards the finished T-shirt, like the whole supply chain of the textile industry, and this supply chain is like complex. <laughs> Crazy. You know that so far it was the let's say biggest incentive for companies to create like fairer conditions or like safer conditions where um what is it called like uh, like certificates like um mm -hmm. how do you call that again like i guess maybe maybe certificate that you basically say like yeah, yeah. like fair trade in a way yeah for sure um, for sure did that have any big effect? Do you know? To be honest, partly yes, partly no. Many of yeah. them are still like greenwashing efforts. Yeah. Um, and we know about this problem, and this is really where our coding mechanism com comes in, because we want to enable saving information 
about your mm. supply chain process within any product. Mm. Um, so this is basically a certificate which cannot be destroyed and which cannot be faked. And this is really important to us. Gotcha. But yeah, that's like um, our double approach of revolutionizing this industry with Solana. <laughs> it's it crazy to me that you three guys, like I was sitting in a room with you for like over a year and now you're really taking on the fashion industry. Like not just yeah. like a l little part of it, but just like the whole the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. It's gonna change a lot. It's gonna change also a lot for us because right now we are on a trigger point to accelerate our technological advancement, but also our growth in a certain perspective. Because the customers come in, we will be able to establish the first pilot lines already next cool. year. And this is really gonna change. But Jürgen, let, let's, I, I just have one question, uh, yeah. for, for you because, um, I really like to ask that. You're wearing your white t-shirt right now. Um, do you know where it has actually been produced? Or don't you? That's, I think it says Bangladesh in there. Somewhere in there. Okay. The pack. Okay. 90% yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you actually have a look at that? Or have you thought about the process it takes to actually be able to buy uh, your shirt, like, I don't know, in the stores we all know? Or is it something which didn't come to mind? Because for me, to be honest, it hasn't so far before we found Solana. No, uh, before that, I remember there was a, there was a time, like maybe middle school, I don't know, like, some big documentary came along about like the the disasters that global supply chains wreck in mm -hmm. low economic uh, countries. And uh, I remember back then that it was kind of like, why are we buying clothes from Bangladesh, Vietnam? I don't remember what where else it was. So I think there was also like around the some football World Cup. That it was like all those uh, footballs being sewn by hand somewhere in mm -hmm. uh, Brazil or something like that, uh, and like those kind, of, those thoughts like crossed my mind, and some of it kind of stuck with me, especially like every time I care to take a look at the labels, especially when it's like high priced things. I take a look at the labels. I'm just like, mm -hmm. okay, why would I pay so much money? For something where at least my estimate on how much it costs to be produced in Bangladesh, like I know that the money of a high-priced item is not going to the workers there. Like most of it's nope. going to stay with the <laughs> with the brand. Uh, see all the brand value you're paying for. Uh, so in in this case, there is a bit of consideration, but generally, then I looked for shorter supply chains or that I looked for uh, goods that are from a country kind of like closer to me. That's not, that's not something uh, I, I focus on. Okay. To be honest, I totally understand that. Like, as I told you, I haven't done this uh, either before. And yeah, j just 
like a quick follow-up question because I think this is also something we don't think about too much. What do you think is like the biggest trigger point from a sustainability perspective why producing in these countries is actually that bad? Like to put it solely in a perspective about CO2 emissions and water consumption, stuff like that. So the first thing that came to mind was maybe not as much water consumption, but more um, like chemicals in the water. Like I remember sure. in, I was in um, in Agra, it's a city little south of New Delhi in India. It's where the mm -hmm. Taj Mahal is at. And Agra has yeah. one of the biggest uh, sari productions, like those traditional clothing that you find, mm -hmm. especially in in India and in Bangladesh, so like those as for women, like those those rope like a lot a lot of dying clothing. involved here. <laughs> a lot of dying involved here. And then you see like a part of the, the sari production where they're where they're actually dying it and it's a little bit outside of the city walls. And uh, there is a big river flowing by. Do you have this like production? It wasn't huge. But you have this production uh, right next to it. And you just see them, like those, taking those freshly dyed clothes. And like, I <laughs> guess they had to wait some to, for the for the fabric to really, or for the color to really stick to the fabric. And just dunking them into the river. And, and it was so bonkers to me because there's no filtering. There is no preservation. Like that's the exact river where a mile down, people are going in to wash themselves. There's just like right out of the city walls and the water going into the city. And it was so bonkers to me to actually see that in, what was that, 2017? It blew my mind. It's, it's, it's hurtful. I actually wanted to trigger something differently here um, because to be honest, like we know that this production approach, it's difficult and you're for sure right that chemicals are like one of the biggest problems here. Um, but what really triggered me personally is that we just throw away 30% of all the clothes we produce uh... because they cannot be sold. and if you think it, about it like that, you have this dying process in place and you just mm -hmm. like pollute those rivers. And in the end, what you do is you take the clothes because they cannot be sold in the stores. You put it in a huge plastic bag and you ship them back to the countries where the, the clothing was actually produced. And mm -hmm. then it's there disposed or just burned and then you have like all this effort, all the water consumption, which is going to waste all the chemicals in the rivers, the mm -hmm. fabric, the cotton, everything. And you just burn it again because like you cannot sell like clothing from the last season because we have fast fashion. We have so many um, fashion cycles in place. And this is really something which brought me towards like more sustainable consumption like to be honest um i'm not like 
I try to do my best in that case. And I know like with our company, we have a huge trigger point for that. Um, but this is something which blew me off personally. Uh, but to be honest, I totally understand like your personal experience. This is, and this is something different because like you're their place. You have seen what they do. You probably have seen the, the weird coloring of the water after they washed off their, um, the, the products. Uh, crazy, crazy. Yeah. It makes you think a bit different of, uh, what the actual standards are. Uh, this out of sight, out of mind kind of, uh, thinking that we in the global West display. But yeah, it, uh, it definitely made me sad. So also why I might not be a great example for, for, um, thoughts about fashion like for me buying clothes is not something i particularly enjoy it's more something of a of uh well something that just has to get done to i guess around like two or three times a year that i okay buy a couple of t-shirts uh buy a new pair of jeans but the necessary uh, stuff the necessary stuff yeah so that there's just enough clothing in um in my shelf, in my closet, uh, to wear. And then sometimes stuff gets damaged. Sometimes stuff just gets worn out. I have my body shape changes occasionally. So there are those things to consider. But otherwise, I still like some of the t-shirts that I wear about six years ago. And if they still fit, they still fit. That's good. I can tell yeah, you. Yeah. Like, also like from the idea, like I, didn't grow up like my my family like i guess the the values they communicated uh, my parents as well as they communicated to uh, us kids was that you just don't throw stuff away as long as it still fulfills its purpose so i also have no idea about fashion cycles to be honest like is there a bit of an adjustment depending on what i see people wear on the streets yes but it's not like, ooh, I can't wear this T-shirt anymore because, like, V-cuts are now out of fashion. Like, uh, I don't know if it feels comfortable. But <laughs> this is actually something which is happening. You wouldn't, like, for street fashion, you would probably not buy the baggy jeans you would have bought, like, one year mm. ago. Uh, ah. Because right now, a different type of fit is actually trendy and the stuff you still have um, in your storage room, it's just going to waste. But also it's like, typically your a new t-shirt is now worn, like, I don't know the exact figures, but is it one to two times before it's just like being wasted in your own, in your own personal storage room. So this is really from an end consumer perspective here. That's, it's crazy. That's insane. I mean, I, Crazy. I understand, like, there are, like, don't get me wrong, don't want to put myself on, like, I'm, I bought him here, but there are clothing items that I bought that I just never yeah. wore. So I remember, for example, I think I visited my, I think I was like 18 or 19, and I visited my sister in Munich because she was working there for a time. And 
I went into some shop and for some reason I thought I have to buy this pink shirt. <laughs> like this pink, uh, I don't even remember what the, what the material is. It's still in the, in the closet, uh, in my, in my parents' home. And never, like I, I wanted to wear this shirt several times and just like the, the looks that I got, like from people around me, which is, you really want to wear that? Like, is that really something you, yeah, <laughs> you were comfortably wearing? So like that thing kind of like symbolized, it's still a symbol. Like I haven't thrown it away. I probably should have given it away, but I haven't thrown it away despite me not wearing it just because I'm so annoyed that I spent money on a product and never wore it a single time, uh, that is still there. Uh, so there are, there are these items. There are certainly shirts that I wore a couple of times. And then we're just like, yeah. mm, I don't really feel comfortable in them. And there is a waste. There is, there is waste being produced, even by someone who only buys clothing yeah. once or twice a year. Uh, and it is bothering me. Like it's bothering me from the personal money perspective, but it's also bothering me just because it creates waste. And who enjoys creating waste? It's just not a good feeling. Yeah. But, but Jung, just good news for you and your pink shirt. Um, Barbie is now trending <laughs> tremendously and this is changing the fashion cycle, um, towards pink shirts. So now is your time Jesus. to rise and shine with that shirt here. Uh, <sighs> this is but, also but Jung, bonkers to me. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure it is. For sure it is. I've, I've One just heard movie that they had. Thing. Yeah. But like, they, they did in the right manner because they obviously had like a huge budget to produce this film, but they mm -hmm. even had a bigger budget to actually market it. And that's really why this became such a success. Combine your childhood with, um, crazy actors, actresses and yeah, have a huge marketing budget and you can just create a huge trend right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's bonkers. It's bonkers. But <laughs> it's actually representing like a good direction, I would say. It's controversial, obviously, but they had, I feel like they had good intentions with this, with this movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I only once passing by like someone playing the trailer. And as mm -hmm. far like I don't want I don't want to spoil here. Like maybe a lot of people probably haven't seen it because I know that the tickets are, are sold out yep. a lot. But it's a, it takes a bit of a the critical side on the whole exactly. stereotypical Barbie, right? Exactly. Mm. So don't nice. want to, to spoil it here either. But it's for sure a movie you can think about. Let's put it that way. Nice. Oh well. I'm sure we'll see it. Eventually, probably by then, uh, you've already had it on all sorts of newspaper covers and whatever else. Uh, probably. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like it, it already feels like a movie that, like, of course, is trendy, but that makes such big waves that it has uh, influence or is going to influence pop culture. Uh, beyond just 
entertainment. Totally agree with that. Totally agree. It's going to impact a variety of things. It's going to impact fashion. It's going to impact, uh, I've read about an article about the metaverse and yeah, everything, but like it, because it's trending so much right now. I, yeah. I think this is the, the, the big reason about it here. Um, yeah. yeah. It's wild. When, like, I, I can imagine that, uh, now that you have established a company, you have have a certain runway with the with the grant, so you're not in the venture capital funding cycle yet. So mm-hmm. I guess you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of when for you're sure. gonna do what. But now that uh, you're applying for a new research grant, but it always sounded to me that you are going down the VC route just because what you're doing is so cost and then like just is so uh, capital intensive, um, all the R and D, all the actual production. So how do you feel about that? How do you feel about starting or going deeper into the, this game of, well, venture big, uh, startups? Mm-hmm. To put it like that, to be honest, we still have like, certain amount of runway we for sure don't have the pressure like we see backed startups right now so we could survive with the money we have for at least another six to nine months here without adding mm-hmm. any additional grants um but like two months ago we really decided to go down the vc route because we have established the first prototype and our prototype is able to produce the first fully automatic, automatically uh, produced undershirts, uh, undershirts and like basic t-shirts, like mm-hmm. basically stuff like I'm wearing today. This was produced by our robot in a partially automated Whoa. manner. And yeah, we decided to go down to VC route now because they can accelerate the pro- process and we want to establish the first um, pilot lines by next year. Uh, so we're currently in talks with international VCs and we, um, currently deep in talks with American VCs, with tier one investors, and mm-hmm. we're about to, to raise our first round here. Yeah. So once you get VC funding, how do you imagine your work, the company? your day-to-day will change? It will add a lot of pressure because we know that we have a certain amount of runway. We know when we have to start racing again to pursue the next steps. And we have our precisely defined milestones in place. Mm -hmm. And this is really something we have to hit in order to take the next steps. And this is obviously a bit frightening, but it's also providing us with the opportunity to change an industry as a whole very quickly. How many people are you currently in the company? We're three co-founders and we're supported by two additional employees. And we will add approximately 
five employees in the next months. Is it mainly on the technical side, like people are solely technical, more experienced? Okay. So like automation engineering. Exactly. Automation engineering, software engineering, mechanical engineering, stuff like that. Because to be honest, um, if you put it like that, we're like 70% software, 30% hardware. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And to produce the, like you said, you're going to you hire a couple of more people and that's also going to be on the technical side. Yes. Damn, yes. It puts a lot of puts a lot of strain on uh I, I guess then you and uh Mihimaya uh the only like are the sole responsible for the organizational, um, legal, regulatory and also like exactly. raising money. To to be honest, like Mike Meyer, um he is 50% working on the technical side, 50% working on the legal side. Oh, wow. Um, because he's like a textile engineer, to put it in, in easy words. Whoa. And I, from my side, I take care like of all the business matters of the fundraising process and like 100% focused on, on that. Cause you just, just for, for your information, um, we have filed our first patents, uh, a few weeks ago. So this was also like a process. Oh, quick technical. All right. Quick disconnect, but we are back. So the last thing that I heard you say was uh, uh, Michael is spending like 50% on the technical side that he's a, given that he's a textile. Um, what did you say? Textile? Textile engineer. Textile engineer. That's a... That's a term. Yeah, he was he was working at the Rhine sewing facilities before, and um, he's really supporting us on, on on that side and bringing his expertise in here. Okay, okay. So Michael uh, is doing like a fifty fifty split, and you said you're you're mainly focusing on like fundraising, and exactly the other business aspect. Okay, so. This also means that um, like, what, what, okay, what other things are prevalent in your day-to-day -day work right now? To be honest, like for the last two months, fundraising was really the process where I had to put like at least eighty percent of my time into because fundraising is a it's a time-consuming um, step you have to do. It's part of yeah. the game. And on the other side, like main perspective there, I'm also like focused uh, on establishing partnerships with fashion retailers, with fashion producers. Um, so we are traveling a lot in, in Austria, in Germany, uh, where, where we visit like the facilities there and see how we can establish our alliance in like the most efficient way as soon as we are able to do that. Mm, okay. So a lot of kind of like operational planning and business planning. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, it's exciting, the, isn't it? These strong connections. Yeah, it's crazy. Especially if you are like at those huge facilities where they produce like an enormous amount of 
clothing every day. And in how can one imagine like, like for someone who's never seen it, like how can you can you like paint a picture? Okay, you have to imagine that you go into those facilities and you see like the production approach for the fabrics, which are often which are mainly automated and then you see like mm -hmm. those huge cutting machines and you see everything is also from Geron automated and then you come into the sewing facilities and there are 95% women sitting there along a line and sewing stuff together and even though those facilities are in Europe, and we have also been to like a Greenpeace cert uh, certified facility before. Yeah. Um, it's still like the working conditions are problematic there, even though we are in Europe right now. And even though those working conditions are way better than they are in Asia. And you wonder, you see that, and you think to yourself, okay. We have to change something there. And then we hear about like the uh, owners of those facilities that they actually have problems with finding new personnel, which is totally understandable because the workers are not paid too much for like their highly qualified work they do. And many of them are just also older and there are not a new workforce coming in. And yeah, that's the sewing process. And afterwards, we have again, like, printing in place, textile printing. Mm -hmm. And also that this is also automated in certain, like, it's almost fully automated there. So mm -hmm. what you have is an automated production approach before sewing, an automated production approach after sewing. And this sole manufacturing process is still done, everything by hand. And yeah, just not in a good manner. Let's put it like that. <laughs> but um, to be honest, without visiting such a facility, I couldn't have imagined it on my own. In which countries did you see facilities? We have seen them in... I, I've only been in two facilities in Europe so far. So Greece, Germany, Austria, okay. Italy, Turkey, okay. but not in Bangladesh. Yeah. And to be honest, there are also facilities where, which are like working in a good manner, but mm -hmm. there are other facilities which are not shown to you. And those are hugely problematic. Is it the regulatory how do you call it instances that are just not doing their job here or is it a lack of regulation altogether to be honest many brands don't even know about the whole production approach because you have to imagine you have like your facilities in Bangladesh like those are not their companies they just like buying the stuff from them and you obviously have like a controlling process in place you visit them um, a few times per year but you're actually shown like the best facility but you're not yeah. shown 
like where all the shit is actually done <laughs> and this is problematic but yeah as i told you the use supply chain act is gonna add a lot of pressure towards those companies and towards really caring about how we produce fashion so really glad about that to be honest yeah i can imagine that that's a huge step uh, i'm actually kind of kind of surprised that i that i didn't really hear about that um like was that like i mean for you being in the industry you probably anticipated um something coming from the EU soon yeah. but like did you feel like it was a big thing in the media did i just miss it or was it just not really publicly pushed um to be honest it was just announced um a few months ago like mm -hmm. that it's gonna be put into place so it's not active mm -hmm. right now uh, okay, uh, okay obviously i know i know about it more because uh, before I founded Silano, I was actually working in private equity and was the responsible for the sustainable fiber producer of Lenzinger Gate. Oh, They're okay. um, the biggest player for, one of the biggest players for sp uh, specialities in viscose, which is like mm -hmm. um, a wood-based fiber. Mm -hmm. And we were talking a lot about the upcoming supply chain act because this will have a huge impact on for example, cotton as well. And mm -hmm. it has a huge impact on the whole supply chain from cotton towards the finished t-shirt again. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I was talking, thinking, discussing about this new supply chain act for three to four years now. And oh, okay. it was just announced this year that it's actually gonna be put into place. And it's still, we we don't still know like this specifics, but mm -hmm. it will have like a huge impact. Yeah, and you will for sure hear more about it in the upcoming um, months, and especially in the upcoming year from now on. Okay, because it is like fashion is a it's not only a huge industry; it's a super consumer facing industry. So everything exactly. that is largely consumer facing usually gets picked up by the media quite heavily and then you have like all the articles exactly. and you have like the economical analysis and then they're gonna put the spotlight on all the bad things that are happening in Southeast Asia right now to put it into people's faces again and how the EU is stepping into to improve that. To be honest, just like um, it's my tip for all our listeners today. Um, just Google Shein in that case. You will obviously know the brand Shein but they actually have regulatory problems so sure. to... Shein? How do, you, how do you spell it? Because I don't know. S-H-E-Y-N. It's like the S biggest... I-N. It's like the biggest okay. um, hyper-fast fashion company. It's based in... Based around like a problematic Southeast Asian... Uh, production approach and they actually face problems to export their stuff to the US already. They have a huge uh, backlash in place and they like for like the younger 
uh, people they're like one of the most hated but also one of the most favorite brands they have and huh yeah just just have a have a look at them make your own picture for that because i really think it will um give you some perspectives on the textile industry as a whole whoa yeah a quick google reveals not so favorable articles yes but still they're one of the most favorite brands for um like the for all of us like for people born in the 90s for people born um after 2000 yeah but they're also quite hated <laughs> yeah looks like it oh yeah that's uh the pictures you find there are wow wow yeah i mean everyone uh can take a look for themselves but uh, there's a lot of interesting digging you can do here <laughs> uh, would highly recommend it yeah no you really should like especially okay, there, there are so many things you can do research on right but there yeah. are only so many things that are where you are the consumer like the direct consumer there's like only so many aspects like food is a big one maybe water yeah. if you want to see it separately and then beauty cleaning products uh, maybe some household stuff, and then fashion, make clothing, shoes, for sure. And that's what what everyone is kind of concerned with. So it's only a handful. Yeah. So if you would give a prognosis of how the next 10 years would develop what are obviously not high fidelity just like broad strokes what do you think will change in the next 10 years for us as uh, on the consumer side like what what might we feel in terms of changes in the fashion industry I think there will be a lot of pressure to actually decarbonize this industry, to actually consume more responsibly. This will be a okay. huge factor. Um, but I also think that you will be provided with more information about this industry because you obviously know, like, take a comparison to the food industry because we were talking about this like just a second ago. You know the impact of meat if you consume it you know the impact of butter if you consume it and you have alternatives for that available but this is something which is not true for the fashion industry and with regulatory pressure with an engaging interest of the end consumer base will actually see those things raising you see more sustainable materials in place will have um a better understanding of clothes and we will um, probably demand for a higher standard of production because we need a regionalized production approach to actually consume responsibly. And this is where Visilana is enabling that. 
and there will be other players in the market as well because this market is a is a rising one, and I think this is just good for the textile industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. They're actually welcoming competition. Sure, it's adding, uh, it's adding innovation to the industry, and there will not be just like one solution um, to solve like all our problems in this industry. So we're more than welcome to work together and just create a better one. Yeah. So cool that uh, the next wave of uh, innovation in the fashion industry might come out of Austria. We have a huge textile heritage in Austria. You might not know it, but Austria has a huge... Read out. Yeah, it has a huge textile industry. Like... 70 to 100 years ago. Tell me more about it. Yeah, like, to be honest, if you know, like, the local centers, but in Vorarlberg, like, Mm -hmm. it's uh, the western part of Austria. Mm -hmm. Um, There is still a lot of textile industry um, there, but back then it was a huge production facility there, and we had to regionalize production approach. And out of that, actually, like, um, the company of my co-founder Michael's family evolved mm-hmm. because they are in the fashion space. So we have a huge heritage and maybe being able to bring this back, this would really make us proud here. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's, that's cool. Uh, that's a nice touch to it. For sure. For sure. <laughs> okay Michael thank you so much um, for giving for giving us a good insight into what's happening right now and also yeah the inner workings of Silana I'm really excited to see how you guys gonna develop especially once uh, when you have more capital available things are gonna scale things are gonna speed up so You're, it's always a it's always a pleasure um, talking to you because you have such a broad perspective about things and you're just open-minded for everything. And I really appreciate that. And yeah, let's see how the journey will take along with, with Solana and how our ways will cross on one way or another in the future again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and see you soon. Bye.